Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, how do you reinvent a city? Palm trees, cocktails in beach bars and power suits... Miami is perhaps not the image of America's foremost startup city. My guest this week is on a mission to change that. Last December, when a venture capitalist on Twitter suggested moving Silicon Valley to Miami, the city's mayor, Francis Suarez, responded with a simple message. How can I help? That tweet went viral and since then, Mayor Suarez, a Hispanic Republican, has set about turning Miami into the world's most talked about tech and financial hub. The promise of good weather and low taxes has netted him some big names already, including SoftBank and the investment firm Blackstone. The PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel recently snapped up a mansion on the water there. Tempting entrepreneurs who are tired of California is one thing, keeping them and native Miamians happy is another. Mayor Suarez is using social media to create a buzz, but his biggest challenge is turning ambitious talk into lasting change. So... How will he do it? And might it set him on a more ambitious political road? Mayor Suarez, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you, Anne. It's an honour and a privilege uh, to be with you and your listeners and your readers. What we wanted to know, first of all, is how does one come to be mayor of Miami? I mean, where do you get the first inkling of the idea you want to do the job? Well, I was actually a councilman for eight years. Uh, I first ran for office in 2008. My father was was the mayor in 1985 to 1993. So we're the first father and son duo in the history of the city. He was the first Cuban-born mayor. I'm the first Miami-born mayor. I think seeing him, subconsciously seeing him lead the city through the 80s and early 90s certainly put the a bug in me. And, and as I got older and, you know, did the things that people do, get married, bought a house, you know, had issues, uh, I realized that I had two, two choices in life. I could either complain about the problem or be part of the solution. And the mayor is a nonpartisan position, but your father was a Democrat when he was in, in post. You are a Republican. What was the moment when you realized your own politics were different from your father's and why Republican, not Democrat? You know, I, I, I registered Republican when I was 18 years old. Um, I've been a Republican ever since. I'm 43 now, so it's uh, been about 25 years. I was always a fiscal conservative. Um, I always felt that the private sector is really the place where people can dream and innovate and create, and that government has to have a limited role, and that limited role is to facilitate and then help deliver on the, on the public good, uh, the things that government is, 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 is good at, transportation, policing, uh, fire, the things that, that government does well. And so that's sort of where the philosophy came from. And I think, I, I think you know, people would probably characterize me as either a Reagan, Reagan Republican or, or, or as someone who's been pretty much a centrist. And when you say the, the private sector can solve a lot of the problems and that the, the public sector can't or that there's a, 
a mix that, that you need to have. I wonder whether you felt that being a modern mayor who's badged as a Republican now at a difficult time in the Republican Party, do you still think of it as an asset? I do, as a matter of fact, because, uh, you know, I, I may not have been selected to be next incoming president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors had I not been a Republican. And I think the fact that I'm a Hispanic Republican uh, has sort of elevated me in the conversation, given me an opportunity to do things that maybe I wouldn't have, have had the opportunity to do. I kind of call myself a unicorn uh, because most Hispanics or a lot of Hispanics throughout America are oftentimes are Democrats. Uh, so it's it's uh, hard to find a Hispanic Republican that's a young elected official. So I'm kind of a unicorn there. And you've said before that Miami's problem is that a lot of young talent from the city often goes off somewhere else as it gets older, makes careers or to, to study. A lot of your peers from your school days moved away. You stayed, you went to university in state, you made your career first in business, then in City Hall. What kept you? The, the city that I love, I just... Uh, you know, I think this is the best city on the planet. Um, and I've traveled a lot um, and I've seen a diversity of cities and a diversity of countries. And I just think this city has a, a tremendous amount of, of assets and attributes. It's an incredibly diverse city. It's a city that's incredibly welcoming. 70% of our citizens come from somewhere else. We're born somewhere else. So we're a city of immigrants and a city of people that come from other places. And that's part of our identity. But I think the other part of it is that I, I see in the future that Miami is going to emerge as a, as a, as a, one of the brightest global cities in the world. I think when you look at cities like uh, Tokyo, when you look at cities like London, Miami will be right up there uh, with some of the major cities in the world. And, and that's how I view it. And so that's why I can't imagine myself living somewhere else or raising my family anywhere else. As you've pointed out, a lot of people do leave. So what do you need to do to retain talent and perhaps retain people who think I've had a great time growing up in Miami, but I see my future somewhere else? Well, you know, there's no doubt that the challenge for Miami has been retaining the, the talent that it produces. Um, we produce a tremendous amount of talent and great talent, but oftentimes when they want to go to the best schools or get the best jobs, they left Miami. So I do feel that part of my role and part of my job in terms of creating the kind of economy that responds not just to my generation, but to my children's generation, I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old and my unborn grandchildren, is taking advantage of this generational opportunity where I think all cities, not just Miami and not just cities in America, all cities in the world should be fighting tooth and nail to grow their tech ecosystem. The reason why is simple. It's inescapable that technology is becoming a larger and larger part of our world. And so I think if you want to create high paying jobs, if you want to deal with some of the you know societal problems that, that major urban cities have, you have to create the kind of workforce and the kind of industry and, and economy that will serve as many of your residents as possible in a way that they can be productive and build uh, transformational companies. Uh, Miami was not historically seen as a city where you could do that. And I think uh, as of December 4th, when I tweeted out, how can I help up to a suggestion from uh, one of the members of the Founders Fund of, hey, why don't we bring Silicon Valley to Miami? I think I could argue plausibly and credibly that Miami right now is probably one of, if not the most talked about cities in tech in the world. And that's something that we're very proud of and we're going to continue to build on. So this was an idea of moving Silicon Valley, if not all of it, then parts of it to Miami or getting new Silicon Valley conditions settled in Miami. How can I help? Often tends to get a reply of, well, you just make it cheap and inviting for me to come to your city. <laughs> what did you think you could offer that was more than just good rents? 
Well, we are cheap and inviting. That's one thing we are. Um, you know, when you compare us to San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York, uh, a one bedroom in the urban core is about $1,500 a month. Compare that to London or New York or San Francisco, you're talking about $3,500 a month, almost a three to one a differential. So that is definitely a part of the equation. I think the other part is, you know, we are, for lack of a better word, a bit of a tax haven. You have to pay significantly less, less taxes in Miami than you do in some of these competitor cities. Uh, I mean, there's cities right now where they're about to pass a budget that's going to increase state income taxes to the highest level in America. Uh, that pushes away innovators and, and creators. And I think that's something that we've uh, focused on doing the opposite. We've actually reduced our only tax, which is our property tax, to the second lowest level since the 1960s. And it's created booming growth. We've invested in our in our uh, public safety, which has reduced crime by 25% last year and had led to the lowest homicide rate since 1954, the year before. And then we've focused on investing in quality of life because we know the reality that no one gets to live yesterday again. So people are going to want to live in this modern day world where they can experience the best quality of life. So we want to make sure that they have all the cultural offerings, all the sports offerings, all of the entertainment offerings and, and restaurant offerings that anyone could want in a global city. But how are you going to do that then on this low tax base? Because that's one big argument about corporation tax in the US and, and everywhere it's a, a trade-off. If you're really going to sell yourself as a low tax haven, as you, you put it for, for want of a, a better phrase, what sounds for some people will sound like a very good phrase, and others will say, well, you should be getting in more tax and spending it on your good public services. Well, we've done it. I mean, we've been successful. You know, when you talk about, look at homelessness. I mean, you look at some of these cities that have tens of thousands of homeless. We have 555 in the city. We're at functional zero in veteran homelessness. So we've allocated our resources and used them intelligently. When you talk about policing, other cities have defunded their police. We've actually increased funding in our police. We have more police officers we've ever had. Uh, and we reduced crime, like I said, by a double-digit percentage. We reduced our homicides by a significant amount. So I think for us, it's really about proper allocation of resources. It's about strategic investments. And frankly, what ends up happening is almost the reverse. When you lower taxes, you invite investment, and that actually grows your tax base significantly. So we're actually growing in terms of revenue, right, in, other, in terms of resources to help people, while at the same time lowering taxes. And what you see with high-tax states is they're increasing taxes to increase revenue, but what they're, what they're doing is they're pushing out the people that create that revenue. So they're actually losing revenue. So it's a vicious cycle. It's a fundamental economic misunderstanding of, of what builds cities and what creates a thriving economy. You've got the finance industry in your sites as well as tech and the tech sector, of course, they're very much linked these days and not least through fintech. But Blackstone, the investment firm, paid about $230 million for some buildings in downtown Miami. Why will your financial district be different from, say, the prestige of Wall Street? For me, it's about becoming what I call the capital of capital. We are collaborating with the private sector. The private sector is coming here. They're saving a ton of money. They're buying beautiful homes as opposed to small apartments. And then they're collaborating with us on how to create an equitable and more equitable framework. So it's a totally different model. Rather than the government saying, hey, we're going to do everything. We're going to take care of everything. We're just going to take more of your money and we're going to solve all these societal problems. We're saying, no, 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 no. We're going to work with the private sector. We're going to work with religious institutions. We're going to work with, you know, social impact companies uh, for profit. And we're going to create the kind of society that will be hopefully replicatable. And, and I have no doubt that it will be and scalable and hopefully a model for how the world should should work. Is it a model for how Biden America should work? Because it sounds like you're a Reagan Republican, low taxer, ambitious for business. You don't see a contradiction between the two in an era when there seems to have been a retrenchment in the White House at federal level 
towards the center-left. Are you comfortable in Joe Biden's America? I've worked with the president uh, and gone to the White House. I was one of four mayors invited to the White House for his American rescue plan. I supported it. I've also, uh, you know, have support major aspects of his infrastructure plan. If you really think about the infrastructure plan, it's really not that different from the infrastructure plan of his predecessor, right? It's slightly larger, but it's, it's, it's not that different. And, and when you consider the investments, I think that they're, they're very important strategic investments. Now, there are things about it that I don't particularly like, and I've, I've, I've expressed that to their, to the administration, and they've been kind enough to listen to me. I don't agree with raising corporate income taxes. I think that we should tax things like uh, carbon, Right. If we want to be a carbon neutral country and a carbon neutral city, which which we plan to be, and we're issuing our carbon neutrality plan on Earth Day this year, um, I think we should tax things that are detrimental to our quality of life. And I think the concern that I have is if you raise a corporate income tax, uh, that is going to hurt the economy. And then, you know, now we're in a situation now where, where the economy is starting to recover. And frankly, what we need to do is fix our immigration policy so we can have more people that we can employ. Um, right now, it's really hard to find employees. It's, it's, it's a problem that we're facing across the country. Um, and I think that's because we have a, a deficiency of workers. And so I think, you know, if, if we focus on immigration, that would be a, a quicker path to prosperity than, than increasing taxes, in my opinion. And so you're giving an opinion, of course, your powers are relatively limited. I know like most mayors I've ever interviewed and probably all I'll interview in the future, you're looking for a few more powers in the years ahead. Do you see that as a way that you could make your aspirations more of a reality? You know, what I've learned in almost four years of being a mayor is that executives, all executives, any executive have a limited set of powers, right? The executive power by its very nature in a democracy is limited and it's supposed to be. Your real power is your power to convene. It's your power to convince. It's your power to get people to follow your agenda. That's far greater than any executive power that any executive has, frankly. And I think that's what I've learned, you know, is I've learned to lead and to try to find, to chart a path forward and have a vision and and try to, uh, uh, you know, create relationships that will allow me to forge ahead. That is far greater in terms of power and, and responsibility and ability to get things done. So persuasion to me is far more powerful than actual power. And if I'm a Miami resident, we know that the the city has an income inequality problem like uh, many big cities and it has some specifics. Uh, I think there was research a couple of years ago that showed around 14% of Miami residents live beneath the poverty line. You have booming housing costs, you're pulling in more people, you've got more, as you say, capital of capital drive behind it. What would this do for poorer groups in your city, if it, say a black voter in Liberty City or someone who's living a really hard scrabble life? I, I, I totally understand that uh, criticism and concern and I, and I share it. Um, we want to create a Miami that's not only here uh, forever, but a Miami that's here for everyone. We want to create a program for digital tools so that children have the tools to be able to, to be successful in a modern day economy. Miami has done a great job. We went from, believe it or not, the, the, the statistics that you cited are actually maybe even conservative. We went from, at one point, 32% of the population being below the poverty line to 20% in the last 10 years. So we've actually improved. We actually went from one of the poorest cities in America to 105 over the last 10 years. So we've created a significant amount of wealth and opportunity. And we have to keep doing that by leveraging public-private partnerships to create affordable housing. And the beauty of Miami, as opposed to San Francisco, for example, or New York, is we have the ability to grow. We have the capacity to grow. So our supply will never get to a point where the costs are are driven up. Sure, on the high-end homes, you know, there's only so many high-end homes on the water.
you talked about being on the water and someone's being on the water or underwater is one of the futures of the, the climate challenge and the threat from climate change. You're very exposed, of course, in, in Florida. You wrote an op-ed for the New York Times not long ago saying you were moving aggressively to adapt. Uh, how's that going? And a colleague of mine, also an eminent Floridian, asks, will South Florida exist in 50 years? It will, absolutely. And it will because we're making strategic investments that no one else is making. Um, you know, we're right now six feet above sea level. Um, there are cities that have uh, uh, existed, you know, for hundreds of years below the sea level. So we have, we feel very confident that the investments that we're making, making today in Miami forever are strategically positioning us uh, to, to deal with climate change. We also not only have an ad- adaptation plan, but we have a mitigation plan. Um, which, of course, is not going to be what solves the problem, but we want to lead on that front. And then I just got out of a meeting with uh, the Army Corps of Engineers for a back bay study uh, to help us deal with storms and, and storm damage, which is a $7 billion project that would help the city of Miami deal with future storms. So uh, I don't think that there's a city, in my humble opinion, on the planet that is better prepared, that is thinking about this issue more intentionally, that has actual resources and has a better chance of, of being the most resilient city on the planet than we do. Last year in the election, you said you wouldn't commit to voting for President Trump. Did you vote for him? I did not. And what were your reasons? You know, I, 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 you know, I come from an era where, you know, I want our public officials to be someone that I, you know, can look up to, that I can admire. Um, I, in terms of, of someone like Ronald Reagan, you know, it was a person of class, of dignity, uh, you know, you can respectfully disagree with people. You can even have political opponents. You can dislike people. But I think, uh, you know, civility in politics is something that I think needs to be reintroduced. Um, you can, uh, again, vehemently disagree on a variety of issues. And I think you shouldn't, you should never, uh, cross the line of being disrespectful. Um, uh, and I just think that kind of tone is not something that I particularly, um, was excited about. And Florida remains a bastion of of Trumpism, even after the defeat. What's your relationship with that branch of republicanism with the benefit of a few months since the election to reflect? I think that that branch will, like like everything in politics after a a defeat of an election, will hopefully metamorphosize into uh, something new. Like everything else in life, you know, you start looking for new leaders and you start seeing, you know, who are the people that you identify with? What are the messages that they're conveying? And, and so I, I think that's what's going to happen. That's what always happens. Um, and, and hopefully the next generation, because I think this is also a generational issue. Hopefully the next generation of leaders will present a different vision. It'll be about the substance. It'll be about the vision. And it'll also be done in a way that is not demeaning to anyone. It sounds like you might just be modestly thinking of yourself as part of a new generation of leaders in the Republican Party, even perhaps with a, a long lens on the White House as a bid. How would that sound? You know, I was there not too long ago with the current president and, uh, you know, I was sort of looking around saying, wow, you know, you know, Lord, am I ever going to come here in a different capacity? I have a re-election this year, so I'm focused on that. I have the blessing of potentially being the president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors in January, so I'm focused on that. It's a tremendous national agenda. And I think the Miami moment is something that I'm very excited about, as you can, t- as you can see, and something that I think uh, is going to propel Miami uh, to one of the great global cities going forward. Once we do all that, everything else will take care of itself. But David, you're ambitious. You're ambitious within the Republican Party. You know, ambition is a very dangerous thing. Uh, I've been around politics my whole life uh, since I was two years old. My dad first ran for office in 1979. And one of the things that I've learned the hard way 
is not to get too ahead of yourself and not to, you know, and, and I'm a very religious person. So I, I think life has a way of, of, of charting a path for you. And your job is to find the path that is chosen for you, right? And, and, to, and to be unified with that path to the extent that you can be. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what tomorrow is going to hold, you know? And so for me, I don't like to get presumptuous. I, I like to focus on doing my job the best way that I can and everything else takes care of itself. I know that you've had to, you know, sometimes have a bit of a tussle, don't you, with Governor DeSantis, who over many issues, many uh, interpretations of, of what the right thing to do is, and, and his desires to bring in tougher voting laws, similar to what's been underway in Georgia, harder to request mail-in ballots is, is one angle of that. Democrats think it will unfairly affect black and Latino voters. What's your opinion on those laws? My opinion is we have to make laws uh, for voting as easy as humanly possible. I think we have to get to a point where we're actually uh, voting online. That's my administration in terms of the convenience of government, which is trying to create situations where our residents can interact with our government without ever having to go into a government building completely virtual. So I think the, you know, the, the long view of this issue is have great policies, find ways to connect with every single person. The beauty of our democracy is the fact that everybody has an opportunity to vote. And the beauty of our country is that people come from all parts of the world to create this great experiment that is freedom and liberty. And that is something that we should all cherish and that has been driven in, in great part in terms of the pride that we have to be Americans. Your father came from Cuba, of course, you're, you're born in Miami itself, but you do have that heritage. I mean, do you look to a policy shift on the big question of dealing with Cuba? Cuba is, is a very, very difficult situation. My father left at 12, my mother at six. My grandfather was a political prisoner. Um, I, I, I think, I hope in my lifetime, it becomes a democracy. I think that that's in the best interest of Cubans and that's in the best interest of Miami and that's in the best interest of the United States. Um, I'd love to be able to visit it one day. I haven't uh, been able to do that, um, but it has to be under the right conditions. And I think, you know, the fact of the matter is it's very difficult because you never want to see the Cuban people suffer, but they're suffering because they bought into a, a lie, a fraud, you know, many decades ago, that government can just take over private industry, can take over uh, everyone's private property and can guarantee, um, you know, equality. And the only thing that governments like Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua have guaranteed for its people and Russia and China is equal misery. And that's uh, that's the false promise of, of, of communism. And I think that's something that, you know, as, as a Miamian, we always want to be morally clear on that issue. And, and, and really, part of what we're building in this city is the antithesis of that. One of your big competitors in technology is China, though. Exactly. That's, uh, the equality of misery maybe applies better to the former Soviet bloc than it does to China. Well, I think China, you know, has stolen our technology. Um, you know, they have uh, created essentially slave labor, uh, you know, and, 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 and sure, have they become economically powerful? Absolutely. But that's something that we need to address, and we need to address it through innovation, through protecting our intellectual property, uh, through making sure that our the, what we're what we're creating is is the best and the brightest companies in the world, and that we're trading on a fair basis with them. And I don't know that that's happening right now. I came to Miami a few years ago. I'm dying to come back. I hope you'll have me. If you were to take me, and I hope you could spare a little time to maybe take me somewhere in your city, where would you take me that I maybe wouldn't have seen when I went typically to Miami Beach and I went to the downtown and I saw the art of Miami? What did I miss and where are you going to take me if I'm cheeky enough to invite myself? I would start a little Haiti, 
which is a beautiful neighborhood that we designated uh, for the Haitian community um, in the northern part of the city. And then I would take you to Wynwood, which is one of the most exciting art districts in the world, in my opinion. Then I'll take you uh, to Midtown, which was a, a container yard that was uh, sort of adapted into a new city. I'd show you some of our historic areas like Overtown and Little Havana, um, uh, predominantly African-American and Cuban areas. So there is just so much culture and so much diversity uh, that by the time you're done, you would have gotten a really nice taste and flavor for what we are. It's got to happen, hasn't it? It's got to happen. Mes Suarez, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Anne. I appreciate it. Well, as always, I would love to know what you think. Can Miami really take on Wall Street and Silicon Valley? Do write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And don't forget, there's a lot more from the US on our sister show, Checks and Balance. It comes out every Friday. It's a perfect way to end the week, wherever you listen. For more of our journalism, do subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory offer. My producer today was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>